The following podcast contains explicit language. Okay, walk me through this again. Hun. Honey, if I'm going to get whacked off, I at least deserve to understand why it's happening. What are you smiling about? No, you're very sweet. We're not going, hun, we're not going to get whacked off. I think we are. I don't, I don't think we are. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special on Date Night, the new comedy with Steve Carell and Tina Fey. I'm here in the studio with my dear friend Tanner Colby. Hi, Tanner. Hello, Dana. Who hasn't been on a spoiler special in, what, seven or eight months now? Seven or, seven or eight months I've been on the road. You've been my traditional comedy companion. I always yes. bring you in for the for the comedies, and I've really missed you. But you want to tell everybody what you've been doing on the road? Uh, well, I've uh, been out on the road. I'm uh, researching my current book, uh, which is about why I don't know any black people. And uh, it is called uh, Some of My Best Friends Are Black, A History of Racial Integration in America. And your previous work includes? Uh, my previous work uh, has nothing to do with uh, race. Uh, it is about two white men who died from drug overdoses, uh, John Belushi and uh, The Chris Farley Show biographies of those two uh, entertainers. I like it. I love that you're taking your writing career on a sharp veer off we're, into we're racial taking, politics. We're really safe territory. We're a hard right turn, yeah. All right. So last night we uh, just stepped out of Date Night, which is the uh, the new Steve Carell Tina Fey comedy directed by Sean Levy, whose previous directing credits include, well, his main big credits are the Night at the Museum right. movies, right? So this is sort of his first, I guess, adult comedy. Um, do you want to take over the plot summary and we'll take it from there? Uh, basic premise, there are uh, Tina Fey and Steve Carell are aboard, stereotypical, almost too stereotypical, almost paint-by-numbers suburban couple in suburban New Jersey, and they're bored with their lives and the love has gone out of their marriage, except that it really hasn't because they seem to be kind of doing okay. But the whole idea is that they're unhappy and stuck in a rut, and so they decide to go on a crazy date night in Manhattan, and they go to a restaurant, and they can't get a table, so they take someone else's reservation, the Triple Horns, uh, and take their table, and this leads to a mistaken identity caper in which uh, the triple horns are involved in some sort of plot they've stolen some flash drive with lots of data on it and a bunch of thugs who turn out to be actual undercover policemen are after them and in this mistaken identity tina fey and and steve carell now find themselves on the lam uh being chased by everyone from the mob to uh fake cops to the district attorney the district attorney so on and so forth and Here's the big spoiler, I guess, would be that in the beginning of the movie, you see uh, the, the, the district attorney played by William Fichter, and he's the big law and order, Elliot Spitzer kind of guy. I hadn't thought about it in the movie, but it's probably just a direct lift off of oh, Elliot yeah, Spitzer. Oh, yeah, it's a total rip from the headlines thing. I hadn't thought of that either. Right. Elliot Spitzer is the, the sweep it clean uh, district attorney. And, and one of the greatest sight gags in the whole movie, He at his opening press conference, he has a broom. To symbolize uh, to his symbolize that clean. he's going to sweep the city clean, and that comes back in a very brilliant way at the end. And he's going to sweep the city clean, and the, the the information, the data on the flash drive that's been stolen, is incriminating evidence of the DA's hooker and stripper and drug habit, which he indulges at a, uh, a sex emporium that is run by the local mobster played by Ray Liotta. Yeah, I really want to get to the sex emporium because I think that's kind of the high point, and I want to spoil some of the gags. Yes. Be warned, by the way, that if you listen to a comedy spoiler special, the jokes will be spoiled. So yes. if, you, if you want them to be fresh when you see the movie, then wait till after you've seen it. But um, but I wanted to get back to the setup and to say that I think I liked the setup. I think overall I may have liked this movie slightly better than you did, although with reservations. And I actually, especially upon writing my review and reflecting further on the movie today, kind of realized that the slowness and the banality of that setup is part of what makes some of the later jo- jokes work as well as they do. I mean, it takes a good 15 minutes 
minutes for us to get into the the caper action part of the movie, and it feels a bit slow at the time. Right. But by the time you get there, you've really got a pretty good character set up for these two characters, and also a sense of the specific ways in which their life is boring, as opposed to, I mean, yes, there's a lot of cliche in that setup of yeah. the suburban boring family, but there's I, also I a setup was, of these two right. people and how they relate to each other that comes in really handy later on in making us care about some of the other very traditional um, action elements that come in. Right, but I felt like it's, you know, everything that happened in this movie, except for the sex club, which was awesome. Everything that happens in this movie, as soon as it started to happen, I could say, okay, I knew that was going to happen. Or as soon as, like, the, 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 uh, the, you know, exposition thing happens in the opening setup, like, oh, he always leaves the drawers open, so she runs into the drawers. I was like, all right, that's going to come into play three times. One comedy beat, two comedy beat, three comedy beat. And I could see, I mean, I could almost follow the math of how they, it was, it felt that formulaic. Now, that said, Steve Carell and Tina Fey sort of painted some brilliance on top of the, uh, the colored outside the lines a little bit uh, in coming up with some brilliant, funny moments. But I felt like most of the movie they were just trying to get Tina Fey and Carell to, to color inside the lines. Yeah, I mean, the movie wrote them in too much. There's no question at all. But it's at least nice to see. It's a little bit refreshing to see a comedy where the actors elevate the material as opposed right. to being dragged down by it, which I right. think happens in most of the comedies I've seen recently. Well, definitely happened in Hot Tub Time Machine. For well, me. see, here's what I wonder. I mean, did you like it more because you're married? I don't know. So you were trying to get me into this after we were walking out of it. You were trying to get me to say, oh, I'm so identified with the boring suburban couple, which maybe out of sheer vanity, I, I refuse to do. Right. Well, but you live in Park Slope, which is kind of like the suburbs. Maybe it's the it's the New York equivalent. But, but honestly, I felt like I don't know if anyone's lives feel like the first 15 minutes of that movie except people in movies, right? right. I mean, uh, there were many moments. And again, Tina Fey and Steve Carell managed to exceed this with some of their riffs and improvs and individual lines that they spoke. Mm-hmm. But the whole story structure as set up could have come straight from American Beauty, Blue Velvet, I mean, any movie in the last 20 years that shows us um, suffocating suburbia, right? right? Except with a more, I mean, obviously with a lighter tone here than in, in David right. Lynch. Right, So, and then I felt the main problem with it was that the plot was so predictable. And it's like, okay, we've got the blackmail information and then we got to do this with it and we got to do that with it. That you know where that was going. So it was almost like, okay, we got to fulfill this plot obligation next. We got to fulfill that plot obligation next. And they got bogged down in, this is what happens a lot of times when you do these sort of action comedies, we got to have the big car chase, and there's not a whole lot of laughs. It's tough to be funny when you're you know, spinning around on top of a car in front of a blue screen or... However, they, they film these. Yeah, things the car chase days. was a big, big mistake. I was reading in the production notes about the car chase, and you could tell that the um, the the director was very proud of this fact. Fact, but they brought an action, essentially, sort of a, a stunt director in to d- to direct that whole sequence with the car chase. And it right. seems obvious to me now that there was somebody who stepped in and said, "I love car chases. I'm going to imagine a really cool comic car chase and right. direct it, and I'm just going to plunk it down." It really felt inorganic to the right. movie, right? I mean, we should say that the basic gag of the car chase scene, which could have been funny if it had gone on for thirty seconds instead of five or six minutes right. was that um was that the couple is driving this this car this really fancy sports car an Audi I think that belongs right. to Mark Wahlberg's character I want to get to his character too because I really right. liked him and uh and they run into the grill of this taxi head on as they're pulling out of a space and the two cars get locked together and then there proceeds a giant police chase through the streets of Manhattan with these two cars facing one another essentially driving as one long vehicle with one of them moving backwards right, right? right. which is kind of a cool gag in theory but yeah. it got spun out for way too long and also way I really didn't like the fact that the cabbie was just uh, essentially bait in that scene right the guy who's driving the cab who hasn't 
previously been a character in the movie, is just this guy whose life is being threatened, who sort yeah. of is, becomes just like part of the fun, when in fact, of course, he would be utterly terrified. And right, curious. and all of a sudden, like within 30 seconds of the car chase, the, cat ta- the taxi driver is giving them marriage advice and stuff, which, which made no sense. Like, not everything in the movie had to be a metaphor for the difficulty of marriage, but they did it in, like, every, at every turn. Uh, the one thing I will say, and we'll just take us to, to Mark Wahlberg's character, what happened was is that Tina Fey is they get the phone number of the triple horns, the people that you know they've been mistaken for. They get a cell phone number for them. And so she goes to this guy that she once sold a house to because she is a real estate agent in her suburban life. She once tried to sell a house to this guy, and he works in security and counterintelligence and, and espionage. And so she goes to him and uh, to try and track this cell phone number. And when Steve Carell and Tina Fey get to his apartment, of course, it's Mark Wahlberg, and he's hot and sexy, and he's not wearing any shirt. He puts on no shirt for the entire movie, and he's just, you know, all Mark Wahlberg-licious, you could say. And uh, I felt that the best marriage stuff was not out in, in New Jersey, where it's like, oh, look how bored we are. But the contrast between Wahlberg and his hot 19-year-old Israeli model and... Uh, and, and the married couple and the tension there between, you know, oh, because when they, when they show up, the hot Israeli model comes down and she thinks that they're there for an orgy. And you get the impression that Mark Wahlberg and his hot Israeli girlfriend just have orgies all they the time. They just sort of sit around waiting for somebody just to Just sit around waiting for sex. orgies and why not? Uh, there were some good ad-lib lines in that scene too. I love the awkward pause after the girlfriend goes back upstairs and they've established that they're not in fact there for an orgy. Right. And then Steve Carell says, she seems sweet. That was really nice of her to ask us to have sex. Yeah. <laughs> he delivers that with perfect timing. Right. Well, that just reminded me, a friend of mine is now married and just had twins and I'm, of course, uh, alone in the world. Uh, and after he had twins... Ladies? Well, after I, after he had the twins, he said, this is going to be like she's having a baby and I'm going to be Kevin Bacon and you're just going to show up with 26-year-old women. And I said, with any luck, hopefully. You know, like as Alec Baldwin uh, does that in the movie. And I felt that that was the, the non-stereotypical tension. Uh, the tension between young single people who are leading exciting lives and, and old married people. Another place that that comes up actually is in, I think, another of my favorite set pieces, maybe my second favorite before the sex club, which we'll get to last and then wrap yes. up. But but my second favorite scene, I think, was where they find the real triple horns who are, in fact, using the alias, so they're not the real triple horns, but the people whose reservation they stole at the restaurant. They're played by James Franco and Mila Kunis, mm-hmm. and, and they're just this kind of pair of really incompetent young thugs. He goes by the name... Taste. Taste, and she goes by the name Whippet. Right. They live in this hovel of an apartment, and they're trying to pull off this kind of espionage blackmail scheme, but have no idea what they're doing. Right. And And then there's a scene between them that's sort of at the same time hilarious and very sweet, where their relationship is falling apart in ways that mirror the relationship of this suburban couple. Right. I actually thought that that, work, that scene worked really well and was very funny. I thought it was pulled off well because of the talent of the four people in the room, because it's four hysterical people in the room. But again, I felt that was paint by numbers. It's like, oh, here's the contrast between this and this, A. And B, I don't know. I just, I, I, I just felt like you know. And I'm not the guy who figures out movies before the end. I usually just sit back and let myself be taken along by everything. But at every step of the way, I was like, all right, well, that's going to happen next, okay? And then that's going to happen, and that's a metaphorical contrast to that. Okay. See, okay, story beat be? for story beat, I agree with you. But right. I think that line for line for line is the place that this movie pulls out the surprises. And maybe I'm, I'm cutting it a break because I really wanted to like it and I'm tired of not liking comedies. And right. at least this comedy had sort of a warm-hearted, sweet spirit to it and didn't leave me with a sour taste in my mouth that so many right. movies have recently. Well, it didn't leave you in a sour taste in your mouth because the ending is awesome. Okay, so let's get to the sex club. So, uh, finally... They, uh, Steve Carell gets a look at what's on this flash drive, and he realizes that it is 
photos of this uh, DA at the sex club. The broom-wielding DA. The broom-wielding DA at the sex club. And, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But he's at the sex club, and he goes, okay, we, we'll, we'll blackmail him, and we'll get... We'll solve. We'll save the day because we will get the cops to arrest the DA and the uh, and the mobster and pull off this big sting. And so they pull all the plot threads together nicely. And when they go to the sex club, the only way to get close to the DA is for Tina Fey to whore it up and put on a big hooker outfit, which she pulls off uh, very well. And when she goes to try and get to the DA, the bodyguard or the bouncer at the door looks at Steve Carell and goes, "No, he wants you too." Like, they're going to have a big bisexual orgy. And uh, Tina Fey and Steve Carell have to go into the DA's private room and put on a pole dance routine to get him hot and get him aroused so that they can then get him in a compromising position. Well, and the genius joke of this scene, I mean, the setup in itself is just kind of ridiculous because who doesn't want to see Steve Carell and Tina Fey do a pole dance together sure. as these square suburbanites? And that in itself is a good concept. But then the true genius that had you completely howling next to me was that the DA gets really aroused oh, by, really, really <laughs> by, this, by this ill-improvised um, right. pole dance that they put on. Well, together. there were two, two brilliant things is that, one, when they walk into the sex club in the private room at the sex club, the DA has his broom there at the sex club, which has all sorts of weird implications and metaphors. And as soon as I saw the broom, I thought it was hysterical. And then Tina Fey does a really low-key, nice double take at that. Like, what? He brought the broom? Yeah. And and then when they're doing their really, really bad pole dance routine. And which like, includes this sort of sex dance robot, Robot. Right? And, and William Fichter, the DA, is like, oh, robot sex. And he's all into it. That, to me, was the randomness that the whole movie needed. Like, once they got into the sex club, it was like... All bets are off. This is insanity. Carell and Tina Fey ad-libbing crazy shit. You're right. Shit. It felt like sketch comedy, like good sketch comedy at that right. moment or improv. Whereas everything between when they got to the dinner and the mistaken reservation and the sex club felt like, all right, we have to check off all of our plot points. But then they get to the final scene, and then somehow, even though I didn't wasn't that invested in the characters all the way through, I really liked the emotional payoff of how they redeemed their marriage and fell back in love with each other. So it's kind of, you know... I thought it was a, a shit sandwich, which is basically if you have two awesome pieces of bread and the first bite you take and the last, you know, the last thing you taste are both good, it doesn't matter if it's shit in the middle. Right. And I felt that there was some shit in the middle, <laughs> but the beginning and the ending were both good. See, I guess I wouldn't go that far. I would say more like it was a, a bland lunch meat sandwich with, with some awesome bread on either gotcha, side. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right. Well, Tanner, thanks a lot for coming, and please join me again for soon Will for do. another Slate Spoiler Special. All right. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.